Now, I'm very lucky in Hawke's Bay that we have some of the best cheesemakers in New Zealand. But, you know, the cheese will never be that great in New Zealand compared to Europe because, you know, they plough the fields. Mostly the cows eat only ryegrass and clover or a very limited diet. Whereas in parts of Europe, they eat 30, 40, 50 different grasses, flowers, wildflowers, whatever. I'm Robin Sessingham, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. The Zest has international flavor this week. We take you to Hawke's Bay, the fruit basket of New Zealand, with an international cheese expert. We'll taste test a recipe for five-minute hummus from the Israeli Soul Cookbook, and Bavaro's Pizza brings Italy to Tampa Bay. It's wheels up on the zest. No passport required. When Dan Bavaro packed up his wife and kids to move from New Jersey to Florida, He didn't have his sights set on opening a New York-style pizzeria. Instead, Bavaro's Pizza Napolitana and Pasteria serves up Neapolitan-style pies, bringing a taste of Italy to its four Tampa Bay locations. Producer Dalia Colon recently stopped by Bavaro's flagship restaurant in downtown Tampa for a lesson in pizza making. I'm Dan Bavaro, and I'm the founder of Bavaro's, and... uh... I spent five years at this pizza oven opening the business and the last five uh, growing it with the solid team that we have. And when you say pizza oven, it really is. I mean, we're standing just a couple feet from this oven. I feel like I've got like a space heater blowing hot air on me. What's the deal with the pizza oven? So a pizza oven is uh, handmade in Italy by Stefano Ferrara. His family's been building ovens for about 100 years. And this entire oven is built by hand. So Neapolitan pizza dates back to the 1800s, and that's uh, famous for the margarita pizza. And when uh, Queen Margarita visited Naples, the pizzeria that they visited, the Ferrara family actually built that oven. So this is the great-grandson of Stefano Ferrara. So this family is known worldwide for building these ovens. Why it's so hot is because we cook temperatures of about 850, 900 degrees. Okay, so I can't do this at home. You could do it at home if you, if you, if you trip your, your, uh, your home oven so you could cook on the clean cycle, but I wouldn't recommend that. Yeah. That's <laughs> no, actually I... how I started 12 years ago, two years before we opened the restaurant. I would practice at the house, and I was able to uh, rig the oven so that I could cook at 800, 850, because that's how hot your oven gets to clean. Wow. Yeah, I need to clean my oven, speaking of which. Um, that's like some MacGyver stuff. So you mentioned that you were getting started. Let's go back. How did you get into all of this? Did you grow up making pizza? No, I wasn't in the restaurant business at all. I left school, and uh, my mentor was in the catering business. We would cater movie sets. So we would go on with food trucks, movie sets in New York City, and we would cater the celebrities and the extras, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So that was my introduction to food. Uh, Shortly after that, about a year with him, he had sold off his business, and uh, he helped me get into the transportation business. So we would chauffeur executives and movie stars in New York City. I did that for like nine years, sold that business, wanted to get back into food, wanted to do pizza, didn't want to do like slices and New York style. I wanted something that had a little bit more passion and history. So I stumbled upon Neapolitan pizza after doing some research. There were only two in the United States at that time. One of them was in Manhattan. 
So I honed in on that, met the owner, spoke with the chef there, and just kind of learned a little bit from him, and then just did my own studies. Went to Italy, learned more, stayed with the Ferrara family, stayed with the Caputo family that we bring out. That's another 100-year-old company, the flour mill that we buy from. And just really spent like two years developing this concept. Wow, you said you did not want to do New York pizza. That's surprising. You're from New Jersey? Jersey, yeah. What was wrong with New York pizza? I thought that was what everybody wanted. Every corner, like in the United States, is a New York pizza. At, when we opened Bavaro's in Tampa, we were one of the first 15 tr traditional Neapolitan pizzerias in the United States. You've got a family. You brought them all down. How'd that go? Wife and four kids. We had the fifth one here. So you got five kids. Yeah. How do they like being part of this uh, pizza empire you're building? They eat good. <laughs> Let's taste what this is all about. Um, can you walk me through... What are we going to make today? Sure. So let's start with the dough. So you got some history on the oven. It's a 100-year-old oven. Cooks at uh, 850, say 900 degrees. Pizza's bake in 90 seconds. 90 seconds? 90 seconds. So that dough that can survive in that type of heat has to be a special type of dough. Okay? So it's got to be a high moisture content. Okay? And it's got to be, uh, we proof our dough over two, two days. So therefore, it's very flavorful. One of the other things that we do that differentiate us from probably 95% of the other pizzerias in the country is we use a 100-year-old yeast culture. How's that Na possible? From, from Naples, Italy. So a yeast culture is a, uh, like a sourdough starter, if you're familiar with baking. So you say start your day with X amount in the tub, and you feed it flour and water, and there's live organisms on the inside. So after you feed it, it kind of expands, and when it expands at the highest point, you use that to make your dough. So this strain of yeast dates back 100 years to a bakery in Italy. Wow, this is like one of the descendants. So you've yeah. got your hands all floured up here. Hands floured up, so take the dough out. As you can see, it's very soft. Okay, you flour that up, and there's a specific way to stretch Neapolitan pizza. Okay, it's gotta be very delicate. So first you start out by forming your crust very gently. Okay, so stretch that out, and then this is a, it's called a, it's called a slap, I guess, the Neapolitan, this is how you would stretch. So as I'm slapping this dough up against the table, it's, it's spreading out, as you can see. And the traditional pizza is about 12 inches, which is roughly about there. And I just know because I've made thousands of them. And then we'll do the traditional margarita pizza, okay. which is uh, San Marzano tomato which is the tomatoes are grown outside the Mount Vesuvius in Italy. It's the volcanic soil there is very rich and the way, you know, the, the sun is and, and the mountaintops and it just grows the best tomatoes in the world. Hmm. So. And you make your own sauce, right? Correct, yes. But these tomatoes, these are just crushed tomatoes and sea salt. Oh, just crushed tomatoes, okay. Correct. But we do make a pasta sauce that's jarred and sold at local retailers throughout the state. Okay, so very thin coat of sauce. Spreading the margarita sauce on is it? the most simple yeah. pizza, mm -hmm. but is the staple of this business. I mean, I get it. Okay, you've got basil. Fresh basil. Okay, and this is, I'm going to use a, a buffalo mozzarella, which is imported from Italy. Mozzarella de buffalo. Mm -hmm. So it's just simple. It's simple. As you can see, it's not coated with a ton of cheese. No. This cheese has a, uh, has a tangy flavor. It's very moist. So Neapolitan pizza in Italy isn't even cut with a pizza cutter. Okay, it's fork and knife. 
So here at Bavar's, we cut because I didn't want to fight that battle 10 years ago. You know, you don't cut your pizza. I didn't, wow. didn't want to do that. So, so we cut it, but we also provide the fork and knife. Okay, so fork and knife is like, is that like a way of saying I'm not sharing this with you? <laughs> you can still share with a fork and knife. <laughs> no, it's just because it's delicate. You know, it's a delicacy. It's meant to be enjoyed and, you know. Uh, they're very soft and delicate, so if you do pick them up, sometimes they, they do flop over. It doesn't mean that it's not cooked. That's just how this pizza is designed. You know, very high heat, fast cook. Okay, mm -hmm. extra virgin olive oil. Okay, you're and just kind of... Put some Parmigiano Reggiano. So like a little drizzle of olive oil and then Parmesan on top? Correct, very little. Yum, that is very little Parmesan. Gonna make sure this oven is the temp. Okay, so you're just taking fire. You guys have firewood all over the place. Yeah, <laughs> like it's stacked up in the everywhere. back. We, listen, this restaurant seats 42. It's a thousand square feet, and we serve thousands of people here. It's just crazy. So what kind of wood is that? We gotta manage uh, our space. We use oak. Okay, so now you're gonna transfer it over to the what do you call pizza that? Pizza peel. This the is pizza peel. peel. Okay, yeah. like a giant spatula. Correct. And Correct. 90 seconds, it's gonna bake. All right, here it goes. Wow. And this is all happening just out in the middle of the restaurant so people can watch their pizza Correct. being made. Kitchen. Okay, you're stoking the fire. Have you ever been burned? Burned? If you touch this, that's probably like 700 degrees. So yes, I got some marks on my arm. Oh my gosh. I'm just gonna back up for a second. <laughs> so our 90 seconds is just about up. Um, it took longer to make it than it is to bake it. It's probably the whole process is about three minutes. That yeah. yeast that's been like cultivating for like centuries and then it all comes down to a, a minute or two. But what's so amazing about it is that this is just like a live, I don't want to say organism, but something that reacts. It is. It's like the immortal life of pizza it's dough, I guess. And out. that's it. Wow, that's it. It's bubbling. Look at that. Wow, that's beautiful. And so simple, just sauce, a little bit of cheese, and some basil, that's yeah, it. That's it, that's the tradition. But as you can see, it resembles the Italian flag. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, so Queen yeah, yeah. Margarita comes to Naples in the 1800s. There's this famous uh, pizzaiola, which is male pizza chef, wants to create a pizza for the queen. So uh, he designs this pizza, red, white, and green, based on the Italian flag, red sauce, white cheese, green basil, and named it after her. And since then, that is the start of the margarita pizza. All right, so now it's time to slice. Okay. So this dough is meant to have a slight crisp on the outside and soft and chewy on the inside. Oh my gosh, my mouth is, I didn't eat lunch because I knew I oh, was no, coming here. Idea. So you're gonna eat with me today. Okay, we got our plates. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for this. Okay, I'm gonna get a slice here. Hungry too. So as you can see, it's delicate. It is. It's, it's, it like wants to fall apart in my it mouth. It does, yeah. So that's the point of the, the fork and knife. But since we're hanging out here with the microphone and right, once you see your hands, just do. be careful. It's really hot. Okay, here we go. So if you try the crust. Mm, so good. The tomatoes are just so like bright. Yeah, that's the San Marzano. It's a very distinct flavor mm -hmm. and, and look. But try, just take a bite of the crust okay. alone. And you see how you have all this? Mm -hmm. Uh, separation and and the char on the mm, outside. Mm -hmm. You have that taste. So good. That's the yeast. Okay, so that's like that yeast is forcing that dough to rise, which is the fermentation process 
over 48 hours. Mm. Most pizzerias do six hours or 12 hours. So it's, it's got that crispiness and it's still soft on the inside. Correct. And it's oh, a man. pure, you know, it's, it's a double zero flour imported from Naples. That means it's milled super fine. Wow. So it's very delicate. It's for, you know, it's probably the healthiest pizza you're ever gonna eat. Last question, did I read that you have a sports background? How'd you find? Listen, I do my homework. You've done some homework. That's a rare, <laughs> yes. So growing up in Jersey, I was in high school. I actually left school when I was 16. It wasn't my path. Um, but the year before I left, my vice principal came to me and he's like, Dan, he's like, look, he's like, can you stop messing around in my hallways? He's like, there's a police athletically about five miles from here. Do you want to go and join? And that was the start of a, a four and a half year boxing career. Do you feel like there's any um, lesson that you take with you from the boxing ring into what you're doing now? 100% determination and just not giving up. Dedication, all that is all super important. I mean, forget pizza, just being in business alone or, or just being employed somewhere as, as a human being. I mean, if you don't have that, at that time, I didn't have that. And four and a half years, five days a week, three hours a day, jumping rope, hitting bags, getting punched, punching back, you know, not going home a winner every day, you know, kind of builds and, and molds you into something a little different, so. And it seems like there's a lot of preparation that would go into preparing for a boxing match, and then it all comes down to just a few minutes. And it's almost the same thing with the pizza, because Pretty there's much, yeah. all this years, years of prep, centuries of prep really went into the 90 seconds that it took to bake this amazing pizza. Yeah, it's, and with that, it's like our job, we just hope that guests that come in at some point recognize that. It's not just a guy behind here spinning pies. Michael Solomonoff is the chef of the James Beard award-winning restaurant Zahav in Philadelphia. And he wrote a cookbook of the same name in 2016 that also won the James Beard Award. Last year, he followed up with the cookbook Israeli Soul. The subtitle is Easy, Essential, Delicious, which nicely sums up its character. It recreates the kind of food that you might find in most Israeli homes or in small family restaurants that serve the most well-loved dishes. And our cookbook reviewer, Janet Keeler, reached for that Israeli soul after she returned from a trip to Israel recently. I talked to her about what she discovered. Janet teaches journalism at the University of South Florida in St. Petersburg. She's the founder and coordinator of the Graduate Food Writing and Photography Certificate Program there. She's the former food editor at the Tampa Bay Times. And she's the author of Cookielicious, 150 Fabulous Recipes to Bake and Share. And Janet is also a cookbook reviewer and the cookbook columnist for The Zest. Glad you're here. Thank you. So you went to Israel not too long ago and kind of became infatuated with Israeli cooking. Yes. So how did you all of a sudden realize, wow, the food here is really interesting? What, what, was there a particular dish that you tried or something that caught your attention? I was very, was very uh, enchanted with hummus. You know, we get hummus here in the grocery stores and everything. Everywhere we went, we had hummus. And I kept thinking, is this good hummus? Because, you know, we were in a big tour. So you tend to go to those kind of restaurants and have those kind of meals, big buffets and these big 
tour kind of hotels. That can accommodate a lot of people. Yeah, and I kept yeah. thinking, is this is it good? I don't know, you know. Um, and then I, so when I came back, I thought I have to get Michael Solomonov's new book called Israeli Soul. I have to get that book and start making it for myself, which I'd never really done before. It's so everywhere that even at the grocery stores you get really it's good hummus. Quiz. Yes. And so it's also why make it? Kind of labor intensive, isn't it? Well, cuz you uh, have to mash up those chickpeas and Yeah, but you've got the food processor and he's got in his cookbook a 5-minute hummus, which Oh, he does. Uh, is I I'm going to say more to like 12 minutes for those of us who are Right. Really new to it. So the book is called Israeli Soul. Israeli Soul. And it's got there's two authors, right? Yes, Michael Solomonov and Stephen Cook. Huh, that's a good name for a cookbook. So Michael author. Solomonov, you said he's got a restaurant in Philadelphia. He's got a yeah, so he's got a restaurant in Philadelphia called Zahav, which is quite renowned. And he has also won three James Beard Awards. Oh. One for Best Chef Mid Atlantic, one for Best Chef of the Year, and then he actually won the James Beard Best International Cookbook a few years ago for his first cookbook, which was about the restaurant. So he's got some big chops, and he's and he really he he knows what he, he knows what he's doing, and he is Israeli also too. So the thing that's so nice about this cookbook for anybody who's been to Israel or wants to go to Israel, it's really a travel book. There's so many beautiful photographs of the cities and where you can go and what you should eat. And he interviews restaurateurs there and talks to them about the food that they make. It's it's such a beautifully photographed book that it really is inspiring. So is the feel kind of common foods that you would find in Israel, you would find in people's homes or in restaurants? It's not so much um, complicated high-end stuff that that he's created? Yeah, I would say not high-end. I would say very much food that you would find there, either in restaurants and probably people's homes. You know, there's a whole section on meatballs, how to do some different kinds of meatballs. You know, the, the Israeli cooking is a mashup of a lot of a lot of kinds of cookings mm-hmm. of the Mideast and even, even Eastern Europe Eastern because so Europe. many people have come from there. So, like, I made the Bulgarian, cook, uh, the Bulgarian meatballs out of it, and those were really good. Um, but mostly I've been making hummus, and there's a whole chapter of stuff that you can make to put on hummus. You've been making hummus a lot, so obviously there's you found a lot of different ways to make it, or you've been tweaking it. I've been messing with the tahini. Okay. So the very popular tahini brand in the store is called uh, Joiva. It's in a. It's in a. Uh, probably anybody who gets tahini would get that. And I made it with that the first time because that's what I could get my hands on at the grocery store. And I thought this tastes kind of bitter to me, mm-hmm. and I didn't have any clue if that was why. So now I'm on Amazon, you know, looking for different. Tahini. So I've been mailing, mail ordering tahini. So the delivery guy's probably like, what's going on in there, right? Why is she getting all this tahini? But then I actually, there was one brand called Lior, L-I-O-R, that I, I did a little bit more investigating. And that's Michael Solomonov's favorite I was one. like, that sounds like an Israeli name. It is. And it is imported from Israel, it says on the side. So I've been looking, where is this even from? You know, it was an organic one. So I think I've like tried maybe five different tahinis. And that, that, is make, that does make a little bit of a difference. Can you make hummus without tahini? No, because that's the sesame paste. That's what really is the basis of it. That's what makes the, you know, that's the oil and the seeds that kind of makes the, the it all emulsify together. I think we think of it as a chickpea thing. And, yeah, there is there are chickpeas in it, but that tahini is an important part. Okay. Yeah. So how many recipes for hummus does he have in his really he has He has the five-minute hummus with the quick, quick tahina sauce. And that's about it. Is that what you brought? Yeah. Okay, let's try That's it. what I brought. I'm so excited about this. This, I just opened this up. <laughs> I have to say, this smells amazing. 
So is that roasted vegetables? So what's on top of it? So he has a whole chapter in the book on um, hummus toppings. Mm -hmm. And this one is the saffron braised chicken. So oh, chicken. yeah, because it's shredded. That's why. But there's there's uh, apricots in it and uh, carrots and some onions, and then of course all kinds of spices. He has some spice mixes for you to make. That sounds kind of like a simis, um, a, a, a riff on simis, which is you often find sweet potatoes, carrots, apricots, sometimes meat, sometimes not. Sometimes not. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many toppings in here, and I've done one other one that I kind of mess. I just messed around with on my own. I have a friend who does canning, and she made some really beautiful pickled beets. So I put some pickled beets on top of it with some pickled onions and sunflower seeds. Delicious. Oh, I, I, yeah, it's like a revelation. <laughs> How can you well, cook this long and find something new? It's kind of exciting. Yeah, because a lot of people will just eat hummus plain. But yeah. I guess the toppings are a big deal. Yeah, he has... There's lima beans with tomato and cinnamon topping, um, salt-roasted kohlrabi with garlic chips, Japanese eggplant, roasted All on corn. top of hummus. Yeah. I'm not sure I can buy store-bought hummus again, nor my family. First, I'm going to try the hummus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do that. Just to see how you did with the hummus. It's creamy, Janet. See? It's so much creamier than – I think what I get in the store is a little grittier. What is in this hummus? Okay, so you start with the tahini. So tahini is just sesame ground with olive oil, mm -hmm. which you can do on your own if you want. Then there's lemon, a clove of garlic, like a juice of one lemon, a clove of garlic, a tablespoon of kosher salt, a teaspoon of cumin, and two cans of uh, rinsed and drained chickpeas. And how did you – and you put it all in the food processor? Yeah. Or did you, you do the – Chickpeas first. Oh, no, wait. The chickpeas are last. So after you do the tahini and the spices and the lemon and everything, you pour in some uh, ice water, like maybe a half a cup to a cup and a half of ice water. And the, and I love it in this book because he says it, it's right when it's the color of sand because hmm. now you've made a thinner – You've the tahini is very thick. It's kind of almost like peanut butter, natural peanut butter with right. the oil on the top. So it makes a thinner sauce. Then you, then you dump in the chickpeas. So I thought, well, I'm going to do chickpeas from the dried chickpeas. Let them, you know, soak overnight and cook them. And he says, don't do that. He says in the book, Michael says, don't, don't worry about that. It's really not that different. I thought, okay. To get the canned chickpeas and just yeah. that are already soft. I'm with him right. on that. Because yeah. you're putting them in the food processor. So I might try just to be, you know, extra at some point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> try and do it from dried. But he's like, mm, you know, you're not going to get that much mileage out of that. The hummus by itself is delicious. Good, good. Now try that chicken. Now I'm going to try, try it with, I mean, <laughs> there's so much here. I don't know where to start. So I see apricots, shredded chicken, carrots. There's onions and, in there. But uh, the rest is mostly mostly spices. The there's a, there's a, a spice, a hawash spice blend that he has you make. And so now I have a little container mm. of that. Oh, there you go. Okay. Mm. So four stars. This is Fantastic. <laughs> Okay, Good. I'm glad you like it. I'm glad you like now, it. It was awfully fun. Now, why put it on hummus, though? I mean, you could put this, you don't need to put it on anything, but you could put it on rice or, I mean, how, how why does he think this goes with hummus? I agree. It would be great over rice. Mm -hmm. You could you could put it in a tortilla. Plus, it's so it's pretty for a party. It would be so neat for a party. I love fruit and meat together. Mm -hmm. Some people don't. This mm -hmm. is um, on the sweet side. Rather than the savory side, I yeah. think. Um, the apricots and carrots are sweet. They really yeah. come through. Maybe the hummus balances that out a little yeah. bit because yeah. the hummus is not tangy. sweet at all. Yeah. The hummus is tangy yeah. and a little salty. Yeah. 
And I think it balanced. Oh, that's it. That's the balance right there. Yeah. I have a picky eater in my family, and she couldn't get enough of this. So I was like, oh, making it again and again. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, because, and she was the one who even said she's a big rice eater. And she goes, this would be really good on rice. And I thought, yeah, I think you could do it on anything. It's not real soupy. So I don't know how great it would be on pasta so much, but I think rice would be good. Or even couscous with it. <clears throat> you did the chicken first, and then you blended it in with the sauce. Yeah. So the spice blend he has you make for this, he has a lot of recipes for spice blends, and this one is called a hawaj spice, and it's uh, ground turmeric, ground black pepper, a couple tablespoons of cumin, and then you have your little mix with it. And for this one, you mix in some allspice. So it kind of, you put it on the chicken, on the raw chicken, uh, both sides kind of coat it, and I pat it in a little bit and let it sit out, out of the fridge for about an hour, kind of come to room temperature and let the spices soak in a little bit. Can I eat some more of this? Eat this as much as you amazing. want. It's all for you. It's all for you. And you could even share it with your coworkers, mm-hmm. but really why? Um, <laughs> but he has all kinds of stuff in here, like shawarma spice blends and things like that. So I got I to gotta branch out. I got to get off the hummus thing a little bit, I think. I love this cookbook. I just, I think it's so, to me, it's, it's exciting to cook sometimes when you strike on something new. Janet, this has been a ton of fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. You can find the recipe for 5-Minute Hummus from the Israeli Soul Cookbook on our website, thezestpodcast.com. Next, I had a chance to visit New Zealand a few months ago and traveled to Hawke's Bay on the east coast of the North Island. It's an area that's known for its wineries and farm products. I met up with food writer and cheese expert Juliet Harbett to talk about the area's riches We were on the grounds of a working farm and golf resort called The Farm at Cape Kidnappers, and she wanted to have our conversation while she foraged for wild greens along a riverbank. Juliet gives food tours through Hawke's Bay, and she's the editor of the World Cheese Book. So Hawke's Bay is something special, even in New Zealand, I think. Uh, it's, yes. It's it's a, a, it, I mean, Hawke's Bay is known as the, as the fruit basket, if you like, or whatever, of New Zealand. And it, uh, truly, it is extraordinary. I mean, it produces amazing apples, fruit um, from apples to avocados. We have gr- wines here. We have amazing olives I mean, and, and, and berries. So there's, you know, there's nothing else we don't grow except pineapples. And what is it that makes this area so conducive to growing? There's something about the geography here. Yes, so Hawke's Bay is surrounded by kind of, if you like, a half circle of quite a high mountain range, which captures most of the rain coming from the west. And this is just a wonderful basin, which is an alluvial kind of plain with um, lovely sort of loose shingle and, and good soil on the top and it just produces amazing fruit and veg and um, wine and lots of microclimates for the wine because of the the difference where you know you have little pockets where it's gravel and where it's shingle and where it's soil and um, you know limestone so it's really varied um, the uh, you know the terroir of the region. So one of the things I love doing in Hawke's Bay is discovering where wild food grows and this is a little river that I would love to come and hunt around and at the moment I can see we've got a little bit of wild fennel here which is rather nice um, if you smell oh. that wonderful fennel so we could oh, have is... that with some fish that'd be nice oh my gosh that a beautiful liquor smell it is 
And then I'm hoping that down by the river we might find watercress. So this is this wonderful free-flowing river. And I know that there's very little above here that will cause any pollution. So who knows, there might be some watercress here. So where is this river? We are on the grounds of the farm at Cape Kidnappers. The, the body of water that we're near is called Cape uh, Hawks Bay. So we're in Hawks Bay, and then in the um, southern end of Hawks Bay is Cape Kidnappers. And that's where you have this wonderful farm owned by the Robinson family. And they have turned what was a, a very large but not particularly economical farm into a stunningly beautiful property. And, you know, they've done this amazing golf course. They've put in a huge fence along with local supporters um, which protects, to protect the kiwi. Um, they have, you know, they have their own wonderful vegetable garden. And they have this beautiful hotel um, where visitors from around the world come and enjoy the food, the wine. And, of course, golf and, and the gannet colony, which is this wonderful colony of gannets at the far end of Cape Kidnappers. So we're on the grounds. This yeah. river, mm-hmm. this is fresh water then. This is fresh water. And so this comes from way up on the hills, um, probably 30, 40 miles away, and it's wandering its way down to the sea. And as you can see, it's flowing quite swiftly and there's no weeds in the, in the water. It's, it's clear as glass. Yeah. And if we stood here long enough, we would actually see the eels going past. And rather irritatingly, on the opposite bank is the watercress that I would like to find. Oh, it's on the opposite bank. <laughs> <laughs> Growing very lushly and greenly and prolifically. So we're not seeing any over here. So there's none over here. Okay, what did you just find? So now I have found a little bit of watercress, which we're going to share. And, um, of course, watercress is just lovely and crunchy and fresh and peppery. And so tonight I've got some friends coming around and I'm going to do some chopped up watercress with new potatoes. Oh, it's nice. It's a little bit like arugula. Yeah, so kind of like rockety type peppery bite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. <clears throat> and the tomatoes are... Wonderful. So the tomatoes down here, um, yes, again, because they're growing naturally, they're not forced to grow, and so they develop that intense flavour that you don't get really when they're, um, you know, grown in hothouses. Is all this watercress here? So this is watercress on the side here. All of that over there is watercress. Yeah. But I don't see how you'll get over there. <laughs> it's I'm it's a little it. the the water's shallow, but it's flowing really fast. Yeah. I would walk across there. I would walk across there if I, if I first of all sent my dog across to see how deep it was. Um, otherwise, Your little I'll, Jack Russell Terrier. My little Jack Russell Terrier. But I'm not going to walk across there and find that I am over my knees. Tell me something, Juliet. So you had a very established um, career going in England. You ran the British Cheese Awards. Yep. You had a successful cheese shop. I did. Um, so what? why did you come back here? So, uh, you know, I look, I love Europe and I love England and I really, really miss it. But I also had um, two sisters here with their children growing up and I felt that I was missing that. And I also thought that I could, you know, have a career in cheese in New Zealand, which might give me enough income that I could happily travel back to the UK. As it turns out, the cheese industry is not so keen to see me. Um, it's a small industry, um, 
And so I decided to create the tours. And, you know, Hawke's Bay just, I mean, you know, when I thought about it, I thought, why don't hundreds of people do food tours in Hawke's Bay? It's such an amazing area. You're taking people to the wineries. To the figury. To the figury for the figs. Yep. All kinds of products made out of figs. All kinds of products made out of honey. Yep. And we also go to the olive place who do um, not just olive oil, but they do olives and they do dukkha and all sorts of lovely things. And there's, you know, there's some, I mean, at this time of year, it's berry season. So, you know, you can go and pick raspberries and strawberries um, and it's cherries. The cherries are just gorgeous. So it's, you know, it's so lovely. One thing I wanted to talk about was dairy because um, one thing that's changed in New Zealand over the last few years, as I understand it, is there's fewer sheep and more cows because dairy has become profitable. Regrettably, regrettably, that is true. Why regrettably? Uh, because the cows are significantly more polluting in terms of the um, environment than sheep are. And I believe that we already have enough cows in New Zealand. I don't think we need any more. And I don't think the world needs any more. So um, I think that, you know... Again, it's that sort of thing as, you know, New Zealand is a long way from anywhere and I'd rather that we produced, you know, value-added products. You know, we should be adding value to whatever we send overseas rather than just sending milk powder, which seems an awful waste. It'd be a bit like, you know, making wine and just sending wine off in cardboard boxes. But the dairy products here locally are supposed to be fantastic, the cream and the cheese and... And you, there are some local cheesemakers that you admire, aren't there? This, I mean, I'm very lucky in Hawke's Bay that we have some of the best cheesemakers in New Zealand and um, they make really great cheese. But, you know, the cheese will never be that great in New Zealand compared to Europe because we don't have the, you know, they plough the fields, mostly the cows eat only ryegrass and clover or a very limited diet, whereas in parts of Europe, you know, they eat 30, 40, 50 different grasses, flowers, wildflowers, whatever. And you've been kind of on a mission to try and teach the farmers here, the dairy farmers here, that what the cows eat makes a difference. I I would have to say that that is a bit of a mission, yes. And, um, you know, I am slowly encouraging cheesemakers um, to make sure that the animals are, are more diverse, that the what they're eating is more diverse, and that we don't have to be so sort of stuck in producing mass volume. Let's produce some milk which pro- produces amazing flavours, which is why um, cheeses like, you know, the Comte and the um, Vacheron Mondor and the Toms of France and things are just so fantastic because, you know, they're grazing on fields where there's 40 or 50 different things to eat and they're a specific type of cow that are, you know, only found in that region. Um, and they don't produce fast volumes. They produce wonderful flavours, you know, like the cows that produce Gruyere and Amantale. So for right now, you're really concentrating on the wonderful fruits and veggies of this Hawks Bay, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly it. So my focus at the moment is on the tours and discovering new things for me to share with other people when they come. And um, I always remember, you know, when I travelled Europe, the things that I remembered most and the things I enjoyed most were the days when I spent with people from an area. And when they shared with me, you know, their local market, their local producers and most importantly, going to their home and they shared their home with me. And I find that, you know, a a privilege and 
and an insight that you don't get when you sit in a restaurant. So I love to be able to do that for other people. All right, so how can people find you if they're over here, coming over to New Zealand and they want one of these tours? Okay, the great thing is finding tours in New Zealand is fantastically easy. You just go on a wonderful website called 100% um, Pure New Zealand and you go what's on in Hawke's Bay and there are all the tours available and I'm amongst um, some wonderful tours doing different things. Um, I'm really the only one that does real food and wine. Um, but there are other people doing wine. Some people do sort of Māori things, which is really great. Um, and then you can go off and do all sorts of other things. You can go fly fishing and you can go and do um, watch the sheep being sheared. Or, you know, like at the farm, you can go and see the kiwis. So there are lovely things to do all over New Zealand. They're really easy to find on the, on the website. And um, hopefully people coming to this part of the world won't be able to resist it's really, with me. yeah, it's it's really hard to leave once you're here. So, Juliet, thank yes. you so much for being with me. Thank you very much, and I'm glad that we managed to spend some time by this incredibly peaceful river. Thank you. Um, a little piece of magic. We've got to go. Next week, we chat with Jamal Wilson, who developed Tampa's first food hall, the Hall on Franklin, and Wilson shares how he's reinventing the food hall concept. We'll also hear from historian Rodney Kite-Powell of the Tampa Bay History Center about why so many historic buildings like the Hall on Franklin have found new life as eateries. Visit us at thezestpodcast.com for recipes and stories that you might have missed. And be sure to subscribe to The Zest on our website or on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Robin Sussingham. Dalia Colon and I produce The Zest with help from Craig George. Megan Trimble is in charge of the website. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media.